It is quite an honor to say that I have with me the man who is the former national Greco-Roman wrestling champion. He aspired to the heights of becoming a member of the United States Olympic wrestling team. Yes, and of course, that's the man we all know as Bob Root. Welcome back to another edition of the Wrestling Stoop with the legend himself, Bob Roop. And I'm your co-host, Ray Russell, along for the ride. And this week, guys, we're going to dive back in time as Bob recalls various moments and memories from a handful of wrestlers that I selected at random, or maybe not so random. We'll get to that later in the show. And before we get going, just a friendly reminder, guys, that you can listen to the Wrestling Stoop with Bob Roop, as well as sister shows like the Regional Wrestling Podcast, where we talk the territories currently with three projects going on right now over there at regional wrestling including georgia 81 with jamie ward the uwf in 86 with roman gomez and now it's memphis 1985 with the likes of gene jackson and steve crawford you can also listen to the wrestling memory grenade currently covering the 1988 in the wwf project heading into wrestlemania 4 and some new shows that I can't mention here just yet, but they're right around the corner. And you can listen to all of those shows and more, all part of the WrestleCopia Podcast Network located over at WrestleCopia.com. That's WrestleCopia.com and anywhere your podcast streaming needs are met, from Apple to Spotify, Pocket Cast, and beyond. And be sure to follow us on social media, guys. You can go friend Bob Roop right now. Head on over to Facebook.com slash PoorBobRoop. I'm sure he's looking forward to hearing from you and speaking with you. You can also follow me, Ray Russell, on social media. You can follow me on X, formerly the Twitter. You can follow me there at Wrestling Grenade. It's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. Also, follow and like me, Facebook.com slash Wrestling Grenade. And hey, while you're at it, why don't you subscribe to my YouTube channel, guys? Talking about YouTube.com slash Wrestling Grenade. And now would be a fantastic time if you guys would consider becoming a WrestleCopia patron. And you can find me over there at patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. That address again, patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. You get multiple gifts, guys, for just five bucks, including all of my insanely detailed show notes for every episode of The Grenade Show, Regional Wrestling, and The Monday Warfare Project. You also get early access to many of the podcasts here on WrestleCopia, where you can listen days and sometimes as much as a week earlier than the rest of the listeners. In fact, the last episode of The Wrestling Stoop dropped a week early. This week's episode of The Wrestling Stoop, again, dropped a week early. From there, you also get remastered versions of the earliest episodes of The Grenade Show covering the 1989 NWA project. Includes enhanced sound quality, plus new content and conversation never heard before. But that's still not all. You also get digital downloads for your viewing and reading pleasure, and of course, our Patreon-exclusive watch-along series covering many past WWF and WCW events. And you get all of that for the low, low price of just $5. $5. No subscription. Cancel any time. Show your support. Give it a try for a month. I think you'll like all the content that I offer. And every penny of it goes right back here into paying the bills to keep the WrestleCopia Podcast Network and all of the wonderful shows here up and running for the months and the years to come. 
And now with all of that out of the way, it's time to bring him back on the show. The reason you're here, guys, he is the host with the most, the man with all the stories. Welcome back, Mr. Bob Root. Bob, welcome back to the Wrestling Stoop. Well, thank you, Ray. It's good to be back with you. Been looking forward to uh, our upcoming segments. Uh, a lot of stuff, to, you know, a lot of stories still asking to be told. So let's get with it. Yeah, it feels endless. The the names alone, just all of the, the wrestlers that you interacted with and the backstage personnel, if you will, uh, upcoming on the shows. And this week, I just picked a handful of names that we're going to discuss and hopefully you have some tales, whether they're good or bad. We'll let the fans make their own decision. But uh, I, I picked out some very unique names. I, I feel like I know you've come in contact with over the course of your career. And uh, we're going to get to those in just a minute. But first, I want to thank you again for uh, the Japanese show last week. You know, we we filled an entire near two-hour episode on your first trip to Japan and even South Korea. And I'm sure the fans are loving learning about the culture, not just of Japan, but the way things were in the business for the Americans and Canadians that went over two trips to Japan way back when, all the way back in 1970. Uh, clearly, you hit it off with Nick Bockwinkle, still reminiscing about that karaoke. I wish I'd been there for that. But uh, yeah, <laughs> really... <laughs> Really appreciate that episode. Oh, your ears uh, should be glad you didn't have to hear it. Uh, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't wow anybody. Let's put it that way. I uh, still would have wish I had been there for that. And, and yeah, I mean, my God, you, you still got other Japanese trips upcoming. You team with George the Animal Steel and things. So I can't wait till we get into those at a future date. But right now, guys, we're going to kick off this show. A handful of names. I threw them to Bob. I believe this morning, maybe it was last night. I texted Bob. I said, "How do these names sound?" And he said, "Okay." And uh, so that's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to roll with here today. The names that I gave you earlier, Bob, and hopefully, you know, you have some good tales or memories for, for them. And if not, that's okay. We'll move along to the next name. Uh, this, uh, the very first name on the list. Oh, Dalin, uh, once upon a time wrestled under the name, Dennis McCord, Mike McCord, uh, eventually became Austin Idol, the universal heartthrob later in the 1970s. But I do believe you crossed paths with him, I think in the Florida territory. Yeah, he, uh, he he was in Tampa. I'm not sure if he's from Tampa, but he was living there. He had broken into the business when I met him. And I read in, in something that he said that I stretched him in his training. And I, if I did, I don't remember that. And I don't okay. think I did. But I, you know, as I go on with my the way that we know each other, a couple of years later, we were together in Australia. And we shared a we, – we bought a place um, – or no, we rented a place – penthouse, uh, not penthouse, but an upper story like condo that was right at one end of Bondi Beach, uh, one of the most famous beaches in the world, but certainly in Australia. They had been rented in the past by Mark Lewin had stayed there when he was booking there. Mm -hmm. So it was a, you know, it was a noteworthy place. It had a history to it as far as being associated with pro wrestlers and wrestling. Uh, and McCord and I rented it for, I don't know, a couple months, however long we, I don't remember exactly how long we stayed there, but you know, I was, we were sharing a place and we, when we went on the road, when we went to the towns, we, we shared a hotel room. Usually you didn't give you single rooms. You we usually asked to double up. So, and we did it anyway, cause you know, I, I liked him and I wasn't much um, more experienced than he was, although I was older, I don't know, six or seven years older, but you know, I had my, he was never an amateur wrestler. I had my amateur background and yeah, and a college graduate, and we didn't have those kind of commonalities. What I'm saying, right? It's not putting him down. I'm just saying that if you had like with Jack Briscoe, Jack and I were both champion amateurs, and we were both college graduates. So Jack and I had that as something that 
ways we could connect. And I didn't have that with McCord, but you know, I liked the guy. He was he was pleasant. He was, um, you know, I was uh, I was amazed to uh, uh, not amazed, but you know, happily so that he he did so well for himself by assuming the uh, Austin Idol persona. But I, I now here I'm talking about a guy that I shared uh, months or you know a long time with in a very personal you know one on one a lot of time together. Mm-hmm. And a few years later, not that much, you know, maybe say even 10 years later, he calls me and he's trying to sell me Amway. <laughs> and wait, wait. Austin Idol was trying to sell Amway? I, 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 yeah, it wasn't Mike <laughs> McCord that called me. It was Austin Idol. <laughs> I want to hear that pitch. Oh, Dolan, you got to buy some no, Amway, Dolan. Think about that. <laughs> what? Here's the guy that knows that I know him. It's Mike McCord. Right. And he's using this. It's like... It'd be like if Paul Newman called me, and I thought, okay, Paul's going to try to sell me maybe stock and uh, buy some stock in his, uh, his salad dressing or whatever. And he <laughs> said, oh, this is Butch Cassidy. Uh, you know, wait a minute. This is Paul Newman. It says Paul Newman on my caller ID here. Yeah, but I'm doing my Butch Cassidy today when I'm talking to you. <laughs> you know, it's the same thing. I mean, I, I, want, I just went along with it because I was, I was inside I was laughing my butt off. I think, man, you're talking to me in this character. I mean, and you're serious. Like, I, I don't know what do you think. I think Austin Idol is more worthy a, a thing than Mike McCord. I don't know why. <laughs> why would you do that? I mean, to me, it was just preposterous. So, oh, and also, let me, let me explain why. Because McCord was one of the guys that I pulled out of Tampa Bay when uh, Buddy Cole's plane crashed. And I didn't know. I knew him. He, you know, we were worked on the same card that night. I pulled him out of the out of the bay. So, having done that, pulled him out of the bay, and then you know, commiserated with him while he was recovering. Mm-hmm. Uh, then our paths our paths separated. And I went my way. He went his way. But years later, he calls me, and again, he affects his character. And I, I just know I don't really get the psychology there. I don't understand how, how anybody can do let, that. Let me you ask know? you like, something. So you, you'd worked around him when he was doing the Mike McCord or the Dennis McCord gimmick, but had you worked with him when he was Austin Idol? No, I never saw him as Austin Idol. <laughs> so, In so, fact, I think Mike McCord was his real name. So I knew the real guy. And now he's calling me as this actor that he persona he created and trying to sell me Amway, which was another thing. You're trying to sell wrestler. You're trying to sell pro wrestler Amway, which is, you know, I mean, I'm not don't want to knock Amway, but you know, it's been known to be considered one of the big top pyramid schemes, you know, and uh, or it's like <laughs> that kind of uh, that kind of a, a product. And but you know, I was glad I could help him out there. Uh, I'm not saying I saved his life. He might have gotten out of some other way, but I certainly saved it. Uh, I know that I did save him from potential much more serious injury right it's one thing having it's one thing having your tip of your, or your the bottom of your toe ripped off it's another thing having to say your whole lower leg ripped off by a shark right uh so that's basically the extent of uh i don't know a year or two ago he i, I don't know who got in austin it was through uh it was through texting got in touch with me about being somewhere in common and getting together but it never transpired so I haven't seen him, you know, and you know, wish him well. You know, he made a great career for himself, and you know, I'm, I'm happy about that. But uh, Mike, uh, 
I think of you that as that guy rather than as Austin. So sorry right. about that. It's uh, funny how that seems to work. You talked about Dusty, you, you, the early Dusty versus the later Dusty in the character, and here we are again, uh, McCord, and then Austin Idol later the character. But I, I almost popped there for a minute when, when you said I, I helped him out. I thought you meant oh, I bought some Amway. <laughs> no, you, no, you pulled him out of the water. I got I got what you meant yeah. after the fact. But I was gonna say, did you seriously buy Amway up? But you gotta admit. That's got to be great. I mean, for a fan, right? Maybe maybe that's what his shtick was with the fans, right? Like doing the Austin Idol gimmicks, trying to sell the, the Amway. Maybe somebody did buy something that way, but and he just didn't know how to turn it off. I don't know, but that's crazy. That, that And you know what's really hilarious, Bob? And I know this is way past your time, and you probably don't know this at all. But Chavo Guerrero's son, Chavo Guerrero Jr., in the dying days of WCW, when everything was awful, they literally gave him a gimmick where he went around selling Amway backstage. And I oh have to wonder God. now, I have to wonder now, what, did somebody <laughs> tell this story? Not your story, but did somebody know about this, this Austin Idol deal? Uh, and, <laughs> and, and, and it was a rib? Because I've never heard that before. That's oh, amazing. Man. But yeah, they, they did that. And at the time when they were doing it with Chavo, I was like, this is ludicrous, ridiculous, what a waste of a talent. And obviously, you know, <laughs> it happened in real life apparently as well. So that that is hilarious. That's the, that's my takeaway from the uh, story anyway. <laughs> well, if I was, you know, if my ego got involved and I was upset, I'd say, well, I'd be offended that those, you know, he and uh, uh, Adrian Street were both. They were. I was on the phone with both of them at the same time. <laughs> wow! If, if, they, if they thought that I was <laughs> so gullible and foolish that I would even consider, it. and I, I should have just told them. You know, God, what are you guys talking about? You're out of your mind. But I wanted to see how far they go with it. And they were oh, just very, you know, they were as, as a kid, self- As a kid, those were by far two of my most favorite characters on the screen. Adrian Street and Austin Isle, a pair of, uh, what amazing wrestling characters they were. And, and, and I loved them growing up. So it's kind of funny. I mean, had I had money as a kid and those two called me, they would have probably had my money. Uh, <laughs> I would have loved to have heard well, that pair. Adrian Street, exotic Adrian Street and Austin Idol. Calling people up and selling them Amway. you got to love that. Uh, those personas they created are great. I call them, want to call them gimmicks or whatever. Mm-hmm. The personas they created were, were great. You know, they did what they did things with them they weren't going to be able to do with their non-stage persona. Uh, Adrian wasn't going to be able to act like he acted. Unusual sure. as he acted in, in, in normal life without having a lot of hassles about it. You know, my hat's off to him there. It's just like movie actors some of the big the greatest heels uh in in movies you know monsters and you know uh, boris karloff and uh bella lugosi played dracula i mean those guys behind the scene some not all of them but some of them were warm and friendly and huggy type people who you know could act like horrible and then you had guys who came across on the screen like you know, Captain America, everybody's favorite uncle and all that, that behind the scenes were total buttheads. Right. Uh, you know, you just never know. But in wrestling business, like I always use, I keep using going back to Paul Newman, but it'd be like him coming up to you and introducing himself as Butch Cassidy, not Paul Newman. You know, wait a minute. I, yeah, it's a movie role. Yeah, but I like. I, it's like I, I Sylvester like Stallone being, coming up to you and he's Rocky or Rambo. I mean, basically. Yes. Yes. yes okay, yeah, exactly. Uh, it's just, it's so weird, it's, especially if you know them. I mean, you know yeah, who they really are. Right. Like I said, if they and, were calling fans and doing that, I totally get it. It's genius, really. Oh, of <laughs> course. Yeah, sure. But, uh, yeah, that's crazy, man. 
Of course, if they uh, were that, doing that to the fans, they would. They would. Oh, we're doing it for somebody else. We're doing it for a friend. <laughs> we don't need to sell Amway Dolan. <laughs> oh, yeah, all the money's going to the little little uh, orphans of the poor and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that was good stuff, man. Appreciate that. I needed that. I wasn't. I didn't see that coming. So, <laughs> not, not well, bad there. Well, oh. Maybe enjoy a little giggle. Oh. It is funny, isn't it? Well, you know, since you mentioned, like, you know, Austin Idol being part of that plane crash, we won't get into the plane crash here, but uh, another guy on that plane crash I thought would be uh, very interesting to discuss, and maybe, you know, you didn't probably have a lot of time with him, because I don't know that he was really there a lot when you were, because I think he came in and really got over in Florida, and I'm talking about Buddy Colt, by the way, Bob. Um, I think he came there right around 72 when you were in and out, and, and he really got over a top heel there for the next few years and whatnot, so I didn't know if you had any... Buddy Colt stories. Now he breaks in around sixty-two, so he'd been been in the business about ten years before he got that big break. Because he started off as Cowboy Ron Reed, and then it finally right. adopts the name Buddy Colt. I think right around the tail end of the sixties. There works a lot in Georgia before he comes up to Florida, but he does become a four-time Florida heavyweight champion and a four-time Southern heavyweight champion. So he was getting pushed. Yeah, and you know he was a top hand. He was a uh, buddy. I don't know if he was cold. To everyone or just to me? Uh, it might have been because he was he was already uh, an accomplished worker, and I was still learning mm-hmm. uh, when our paths crossed. But he's one of the guys also I pulled out of the drink. And my girlfriend was the one that had seen where they were coming and came and got me, and she wasn't, she wasn't going to be able to pull him out either. So, I mean, when I say give him a hand, they needed somebody strong enough to lift them, actually lift them out of the water. There was no way they could help themselves. Because there was nothing solid or no, nothing that they could actually hold on to. I had to actually lift them out of the water. So, but Buddy, uh, you know, he got, he really got a raw deal there. Now, we talked about him on a previous uh, episode, the time when we were up in Perry, Florida, and, you know, it was hunting season the next day and we were getting the car repaired. He put the sleeper on some, uh, one of the local oh, right. guys. Yeah. That asked about the is that sleeper hold real and we were your, I, was, I think Bearcat right was that was the story you're yes. talking about yes okay <clears throat> well we were putting over I was putting over Bearcat about what I class act I thought he was and right. Buddy was there and you know and his his import in that story was that he couldn't run we had to do whatever we had to do we had to do it right there because there was no way to get out of get him or and all of us out of there and you don't leave one of the guys you don't but now Buddy got a really bad deal. He had a dislocated, I think a dislocated ankle. When he got treatment for it, uh, the surgeon, instead of manipulating it from the outside without, because there, there was no wound there. It was all, you know, the ankle was just, you know, was out of, out of alignment. Instead of just manipulating it back and, you know, taking x-rays or whatever, I don't know the exact procedure, but, you know, manipulating it back into position, because it's a relatively minor injury compared to what Buddy ended up with. What the surgeon did was he did what's called an open reduction. He cut into his ankle to open everything up. He made a pretty sizable incision to open it up, to put everything back in place where he could see it. Then he sewed it up. This was like apparently on a Friday. He sewed it up, put Buddy's foot and his lower leg in a cast, and left him in the hospital until Monday. When he came back on Monday uh, and they checked him, it was very, very seriously infected. 
And what they had to do was take, uh, they took Buddy to a hyperbaric chamber, uh, the Ooh. kind you put pe people into uh, who have the bends where right. you can yeah. put, put pressure on them. And apparently that, that kills uh, gangrene. He had gangrene wow. in, his, in, his, in, his, in his ankle by the time that they took that cast off. The surgeon should have gotten a massive malpractice. And I hope Buddy did collect because I don't know how much, it wouldn't matter. How much, you know, somebody makes a, a cripple out of you for life, uh, how much money is going to make up for that? You know, right. you go from being an athlete. Uh, I mean, well, you can't even run. I mean, it really limits your your life and your, your thoughts about your own self and, uh, you know, taking care of yourself, defending your family and everybody else. I, I'm talking about worst-case scenarios. It really put a damper on you. No amount of money would be worth it for me. You could say, hey, let us amputate your ankle. We'll give you $20, billion. No, <laughs> forget it. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll go ahead and give it some, find some other mark to take that. Anyway, uh, yeah, Buddy got a raw deal. And, you know, I was sorry it happened to him because he, he was a great talent. He never, I don't, as far as I know, he never worked in the ring again. He stuck around the business. I don't remember exactly. His job was selling nuts and bolts, something like that. And then he got on TV, he was yeah. helping Gordon. He was co-chair with Gordon for on TV for a while. I ran into him. He and I butted heads down there uh, when I was booking in 86 and 87. Whenever I was in there, right after, in the middle 80s, uh, he, he hated Kendall Wyndham. Uh, I don't, he hated, not, he didn't hate it. He didn't hate him personally. He hated the way he looked. Oh, well, I can't blame him there. He looked like a string bean. <laughs> well, Kendall was, Kendall was, he was like six, four and about 210 pounds. But I tell you what, in amateur wrestling, I saw many matches where on one side, there's a guy that looked kind of like Kendall. And on the other side, there's a guy who's like three or four inches shorter. He's built like a, you know, like a gorilla come out there. look like he's three times stronger than the guy, the taller guy. And the tall guy beat the crap out of him. I mean, I'm talking about at Olympic level. You know, you're talking about top guys in the world. You know, what you what you see, this one guy looks like he should be able to really overpower. But in wrestling, uh, you use people's strength against them. And so the stronger the guy is, the more you have to use against him. So uh, you can never tell by the way a person looks. Now, that doesn't have any. That's amateur wrestling. That I was going to say, now this is the pros. Yeah, it doesn't have anything <laughs> to do with pro wrestling. But the thing is, I worked as Meha Singh. Right. I worked with Kendall in single matches, and we had believable matches. I mean, totally believable. I got a tie heat on a kid. He was a white meat baby face, and it was easy to make him because he would sell. But I had good matches with him. And the other thing is, older brother Barry Wyndham is there, and if I get rid of Kendall— uh, why is Barry going to be happy to stick around? Uh, and Barry was a big card for us. So my God, uh, you know, he was greatest one of my natural pros of all time. Barry Wyndham. Oh, I could watch yeah. his matches all day. Oh, well, well was I was going to say when, when you were talking about Kendall, I, I was going to say he has two big negatives going for him there. One is his, his look. I mean, he can't really help it. It takes him about 15 years to fill into his body. Uh, and, and the second thing is his brother's Barry Wyndham. He's <laughs> just not, yeah. you, know, you know, that's. That's that sucks. <laughs> I mean, it's great, but but it sucks. You know, when you're trying to trying to get over too. But you know, brother Barry, older brother Barry, man, he just doesn't get any better. Well, there's a there's there's a backstory that I don't know if anybody's ever heard it. 
Charlie Lay was still uh, Charlie there. Whoever was behind the desk, uh, handing out, was still handing out paychecks and bookies from there. Told me the cops had come by three or four times. They had warrants for Kendall's arrest. He'd gotten in fights in bars with people who said just did just what Buddy Colt said. They called him, "Hey, you big skinny string bean! I bet you couldn't beat anybody." Well, Kendall beat the crap out of them. Well, because otherwise <laughs> there wouldn't be a warrant out for his arrest. Right. You know, if he was the one that got beat up. So, yeah, I mean, the kid legitimately was tough. And I respected him. I wasn't going to fight him, of course. But if I got in a situation where I wanted somebody to watch my back, I wouldn't be upset if it was him. I would feel fairly confident. And it has nothing to do with what you look like. It's what's in your head. You know, what do you have? What, what do you think? And Kendall, think about this. He had to live up to not just Barry. They both had to live up to blackjack. You oh, know, their good. dad was a sure. was a big time talent. You know, for years, and they had a rough upbringing with him too. And so, you know, here they are. Here they are trying to make it on their own. So Kendall's got not just he's got two people right. that he's got to not compete with, but he's going to be compared to and reflected against. So he's got a, he's really behind the eight ball. And I'm telling you, when I worked with him, I, I was his booker, too, for a year. And he was cooperative. He'd do anything I wanted him to do. Well, Buddy Colt didn't like him. He said, oh, that, he's exposing the business. <laughs> and, you know, I want to tell Buddy, I said, Buddy, you know, I've worked in places where you wouldn't, I mean, I'd already seen, the, like, these English things. I was telling you in another, another uh, issue we put out, about these 70-year-old British guys with their junk hanging out of their, right. their baggy shorts. Well, they were over. That, were, that had people who yelled, screaming and yelling, thinking and totally believing them. They looked like an old lady could come up there and kick their butt. And they had people believing there. So it's not what you believe, buddy, Colt, rest in peace, buddy, but it's not what you believe. It's what the fans believe. And the fans believe when I wrestled him as Neha saying they believed he could beat me. So that's all I need to know. When I ended up losing my job there, I was ready to go anyway. It was bur- I was burned out. But Buddy and Gordon Soley and uh, Mike Graham, because I wouldn't book Mike. <laughs> I, if I had, if, well, if I booked him, I had to leave somebody off. Mike had a, <laughs> was already a millionaire. Sure. I, you had these other guys that were trying to make a living. If I booked him, I had to leave somebody off. I was hearing from Matsuda and Duke Kiyomuka, the, the owners that I was booking for, that we, hey, you need to watch every dollar that you, you know, we spend. Uh, yeah. You know, you keep your car, you don't hire, don't put on extra matches and all that. So working under those circumstances, I couldn't, and I told Mike that. Well, he didn't like it. He wanted, he was married. He wanted to get out on the, rest in peace, Mike. He wanted to get out on the road and have some fun and, and all that. And, uh, but, you know, so I had those, those guys, They'd be talking at, in Tampa uh, when uh, running matches in Tampa. I'd go into, uh, these guys would be out in the hall somewhere. <laughs> the three of them would get quiet when I went by and all look, give me the, the fish eyes went by. So it wasn't too hard to figure out what they were talking about. But, you know, that's it's all those years ago. You know, I've talked about you and I being macabre sometimes, laughing right after something we heard somebody passed away. Not that's what we weren't laughing about. Right. But, yeah, I so I don't want to talk, be talking in a kind of a jocular, amused way, and say, and those three guys are all gone now. Rust in peace, all three of them. 
But that's what was happening then. So that was also part of my relationship with Buddy Colt. And all I'd ever done, the first thing I ever really did that was intimate with him was pull him out of water that was uh, rapidly filling up with sharks. So uh, I don't feel like I ever did him any real disservice. Because uh, well, I Kendall Wyndham, and that, that, count, that <laughs> goes against everything. Right. Yeah, and I want to say, well, uh, I should have gone to Buddy and said, Buddy, uh, you got some special deal with uh, Barry, with the older brother? Uh, if you can get Barry to guarantee he'll stick around if I fire Kendall, maybe I'll think about it. But no, I wasn't going to think about it. I wasn't going to let Buddy Colt or Gordon Sully or anybody else tell me how to book. Mm-hmm. If you're going to get fired or if you've got a job, if you want to get fired from it, if you think there's a chance of getting fired, at least getting fired doing your own thing. Don't get fired doing somebody else's crap. Right. <laughs> you can't say, oh, well, I, I didn't. I got, oh, Duke and Hero, you want to fire me? Well, I wasn't my idea. That was Gordon <laughs> Sully's idea, you know? Well, you're yeah. the booker, Bob. What are you doing listening yeah. to Gordon Sully? Well, exactly. Can you, imagine, yeah. can you imagine having to be that kind of weasel to say something like that? <laughs> I know. I know. Oh, man. <laughs> no, that's right. If you've got the responsibility and you're the one that's going to be paying, you better be the one doing what, what you think is best to do. That way, you know what? When you get fired, say I was a young booker and I was going to stick around the business. I quit the business that long after that. But if you're going to stick around the business, that'd be a learning experience. And that getting let go, we're going to go on a different. It's like a, a pro football coach getting fired, and, and uh, next week he's coaching another team because he's a good coach. Right. But the team he was with, they just said, "Well, you know, the team hadn't been doing well lately. We're going to go on a new direction." And but the coach is a good coach. He just needs to go somewhere else. It's kind of on that line. But so yeah, that was uh, that was. I think it was Michael Dennis or Dennis Michael McCord and Buddy Colt or uh, Ron Reed, a.k.a. Buddy Colt. Who else do you want to talk about? Well, you know, we've talked just a little bit here and there about some of the managers that you worked around in the Florida Territory back in the early years. Uh, J.C. Dykes, Mario Galento's name has obviously come up. First manager you ever saw, Homer O'Dell. That was an interesting story about Homer, or at least what you heard anyway. I was thinking, what about a bigger name, a name that people may be more familiar with, at least through the 1980s? What about Gary Hart? At one point, I think you were even part of the Hart's Army back in the 1970s. But do you know a whole anything about Gary's run there? Were you paying attention to what he was doing outside of the segments where you were involved in? Because I think Gary got started in the business somewhere around like the early 60s. And he used to work yeah. at Marigold Arena up in Chicago. And he would always let you know. He was from the, the mean streets of Chicago, so everybody should know that much. And he carried a blade, a razor blade with him at all times. These are the things Gary Hart wanted everybody to know. But I, he started out as a wrestler, for those who don't know, eventually becomes yeah. a manager. And, and yeah. But I was just curious if you have any memories, because you had to have been around Gary off and on quite a bit. Yeah, I like Gary. Uh, in fact, the first book I wrote, Deathmatch, uh, I have a manager in that book, and I based it on Gary Hart. I call him Hartley, I think, or something like that. But um, Very clever. Yeah, yeah. Well, I liked his style, you know. Yeah. I, I it was like a Chicago punk, you know. And Yeah, I liked his style, and I thought he was very good. He was very effective. He was serious. He wasn't cartoonish at all. He was, uh, uh, and he got heat, you know. He was a good manager. There's some managers that try to upstage the talent that they're mm-hmm. supposed to be representing. And it's one thing if they do it, in an interview, if you've got somebody like Pac Song as your, you know, you're managing him. Right. 
or or kabuki. some people who things like yeah that. kabuki someone who either can't or shouldn't be speaking doing their own interviews unless they can come up with some foreign language they want to bark out a few sentences and uh then gary was fine you know but once he got in the ring he wasn't you know he wasn't trying to uh draw attention away from him when he was uh ringside so i always liked that about him he was uh he, he, he did his part he did he knew his role and he did it very well he did good interviews and he was a likable guy he was a stand-up guy and you know i was at a part his apartment a few times which i very rarely hung around with other wrestlers now i couldn't with jack briscoe i would have if i was a baby face but being a heel, I couldn't. I couldn't even be seen in the same apartment complex with him. Really, mm-hmm. uh, certainly not going to his place. So, you know, you weren't a lot of people. That, and that's another thing we'll get into. I might, I might have mentioned it before, but wrestlers aren't really close friends because we're all competing for the same. You know, we were all competing for top spots, and and you get, you know, even if your tag team partners stay for a year, something might happen where you get split up. And maybe one gets hurt, or, or you both get let go, and there's no room for, uh, you know, there's no room for a tag team somewhere to where you have to, to take single jobs. Maybe one guy goes to California, the other one goes to uh, uh, up into Canada. You know, where you have a whole country between you, so you might not see each other for a couple of years even. So it's hard to have enduring friendships in the wrestling business, but. Um, Gary, uh, he was fun to be around. He had good stories. Uh, he was decent to me. He was more experienced than I was, but he showed respect for my background and what I could do. And, I, you know, again, he was a fun guy to be around. Well, he was another guy I pulled out of the bay, and, boy, what a change. Uh, my main uh, interaction with him uh, was after that happened okay. because he was so affected by it that, he he got paranoid. I mean, I went over to his apartment. Come one time, I went over to his apartment. He had a a Thompson submachine gun behind his front door, and he had the door locked. And he had a he had had a new lock put on it too. He was convinced that the wrestling office was out to get him some way. This was about two weeks after the the plane crash. You know, I, I know you uh, he, You were part of that army at one point. He managed a hell of a lot of wrestlers over the years. Obviously, he evolved along with the wrestling. He created, uh, he, he says he created the, the great Kabuki character. There was actually a great Kabuki before Takachio did it. It was uh, Ray Urbano who did it in the 1970s. But Gary says he invented it, and it is what it is. But he did, you know, he did get that version of Kabuki over. Takachio was basically a prelim guy here in the States until he got the Kabuki gimmick. Uh, so, and then, you know, Hart was infamous as a booker later on too. I don't know if he booked any in Florida when you were there, but I know he wound up booking in world-class and things like that right before it took off. And the story goes that, um, he booked that big infamous, I don't know if you know the storylines in the other territories and whatnot, but the night that the Freebirds came and turned heel on the Von Erichs, slamming the cage door on Kerry's head during a world title match with Flair. And it lit, you know, I'm sure you've heard of the Von Erich Freebird feud that lit Dallas on fire for about two years there and sold out the arenas every week. And um, Gary Hart started it all. So, he, you know, he always gets credit for starting that feud. So Gary had quite a mind on top of just being a, a wrestling manager. Well, he did the same thing and, and, and back in Florida. Uh, he had Murdoch. I think he had Paxson. I think Paxson was there then, maybe. He had me, at Slater. He had a couple Samoan guys that... Uh, Might have been Tapu and Reno Tafuli. 
Uh, Could I, know have he, been. I, I know he always put those guys over. He's told a story before about, I think it was booking Georgia very briefly, and they told him they wanted Afa and Sika, but he wanted his Samoans and supposedly he quit specifically because of that. And I don't, it could be embellished a little bit, but uh, he seemed to have not he liked those guys. So it may have been those two. I don't know without looking. Well, anyway, he had this Hearts army of, uh, you know, five or six or seven guys, main event guys like Murdoch and now Paxson couldn't talk for himself, really. You know, his thing was chopping a board or whatever, but. Well, he had the uh, Stomper. Do it. Right, Stomper was in there too. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So he had all these guys, and I, before I remember seeing them, not a group, but I mentioned on a previous episode that uh, in Miami, Dusty was against superstar Billy Graham, and after beating Graham, uh, they did a thing where all the all Hearts Army, everybody, for some reason, I didn't go. I don't know why. I can't remember. But every, all, everybody in Hearts Army ran into the ring to attack Dusty, and um, he repelled them, you know, they came one at right. a time. Yeah, one at a time. Yeah. That's the yeah. way things work in wrestling. Right. <laughs> so, you know, and he repelled them all and then beat Superstar again. And that's the place where I saw, um, you know, Gary was like directing traffic and, and sending these guys in there. But in a one-hour TV show, you don't have time to have all of the guys in Hearts Army, like Murdoch, and Stomper, well, I don't know if Stomper, did he do his own interviews? I don't even remember. But, you know, have these different guys, me and all these other people, do different do interviews. You didn't have enough inter- interview time. But by having Hart out there to talk for everybody. Right. Uh, and everybody standing yeah. around him. There's actually a picture yeah. of his army during your, when you were part of it. I, I just saw it recently in the last few weeks, too. And I can't remember everybody there, but I know I remember Stomper in the picture. You're in the picture. Obviously, Gary Hart's in the picture. Maybe Murdoch. I'm not sure. I can't recall. But obviously, he had different incarnations of guys that came and went in his army. But I just popped because it was you know during your tenure. I was like, oh my god, there, there's a. I hadn't seen the picture before, so that was really yeah. cool. Yeah. So you know, Gary Gary was capable, and the Booker was competent, and Graham Eddie Graham was was involved then, was competent that uh, they were all competent. Gary was able to focus the heat of all the different guys involved and whatever they were doing, because we weren't all in the same match. We were spread out over different matches on the card. That's what I was going to say. I mean, let's say there's, let's just say there's four of you guys. He's got to put over all four of you guys and everybody you're working, all the storylines going on and everything. So, yes. Yeah. So he was able to verbally and physically with his mannerisms, his look, his facial expressions, his body language was able to bring out the heat that all of us carried, that means that he was a very good manager because uh, not everybody can do that. And and he was excellent at it uh, because we drew. Oh, I just have another another reason, another factor why maybe it was easier to do and they were capable of doing that was because Dusty Rhodes was such a draw that I think everything was a sellout. But I don't know if you could have had, you know, Pee Wee Herman and Howdy Doody out there's your heels and drawn against Dusty. You had to have you had to have somebody believable opponents. To, well, you had to have people that they want to see Dusty beat. Right. Uh, I mean, you you had to somebody that needed to get beat up, and Dusty was the one to do it. They were confident he whoever it was he could do it. Yeah, Gary Hart was uh, Gary Hart was top of the line as a manager and as a uh, booker. I remember him. Uh, talking about finishes and things and programs in his apartment. 
So yeah, he was uh, he was a top guy. Well, that's really cool. You know, uh, me just knowing Gary Hart as a fan. Unfortunately, I only got to catch the tail end of Hart's run there in the 1980s as a manager, and I feel like near the end there, he really didn't uh, evolve with, with the way the world had evolved, and he was still kind of doing that 1970s Gary shtick. And it really wasn't working because there was a lot of racist <laughs> tones in some of the stuff he was doing when it just seemed absolutely unnecessary, had nothing to do with the feud. And then he actually manages the great Muda, who got over over like hell in the NWA right before right around 1989. And the story goes, Muda got so over that they wanted to turn him babyface. He was going to be a huge babyface star. And Gary Hart was the one that went to Muda because he was his manager because it just said managed Kabuki before him. And he told Muda, don't don't turn face, refuse to turn face, because a Japanese wrestler will never get over as a babyface here in America. They won't accept it. And I feel like that was kind of behind the times because Muda was getting over as a babyface while he was a heel. So I don't know if that was Gary kind of trying to make sure he continued to manage Muda. I don't really know what the story was there, but Muda refused. And Muda winds up getting jobbed out at Starcade three times. And he leaves the company. And so what could have wow. been? Yeah, what could have been now? He went on to have a, a major career over in Japan still and still make trips over here to the States as well. Everybody knows the great Muda. Yeah, what could have been? I, I always wondered, you know, if Muda just turned the baby face, maybe we'd got a couple more years of, of great action here in the, in the States with him. But yeah, so that was kind of the tail end of Gary Hart's run in the big time there. Yeah, Muda. Uh, was nice looking young kid. Yes. Yeah. That's what I hear. I, I, hear, he I hear the ladies loved him <laughs> when he was here. I think when he first came to... Uh, he was in Florida with you. Yeah, he was. He was staying yeah. in an apartment with me. Oh, okay. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, nice, nice kid. Yeah, yeah nice kid. I, I, was, I wasn't around much longer after that. Uh, at least I'd left or something. Because, But I remember his work. He had something special. He did run into a corner doing a backflip something. Yeah, the backflip so, elbow. Yeah. Yeah, but, yeah, he had some different stuff that uh, was attractive. And he was a nice-looking kid. Yeah, he, the way he just snapped things off, it was uh, next level, yeah. very different than what others would do, even people that could do things like that. So, yeah, Muda was, was quite a talent, for sure. Um, he was kind of like he was kind of like Bruce Lee, in a sense, you yeah, know? Yeah, I could see that. Nice looking. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. I forgot. I totally forgot that, yeah, he would have came through Florida right around the, the end of your run there. So, yeah, that's yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, <laughs> And into Muda. Um, let's... Uh, well, hell, we talked uh, about a few of the names now. I, we won't go into the actual uh, situation, so we'll try to avoid that, at least for this episode. But I'm sure I, I've read some things, not a whole lot, and I don't know a whole lot about this, but a wrestler by the name of Bobby Shane, uh, later in his career, the king, Bobby Shane, the, the actually the guy that gave Jerry Lawler the gimmick, because Lawler saw him do it and said, I love it, I, I want to be the king. And actually the story goes that Bobby Shane loaned Lawler his crown and then never got it returned. He was supposed to, Lawler was supposed to return it the following week or whatever, but the plane crashed and Bobby Shane died and Jerry Lawler kept the crown and he became the king. And it's a kind of a crazy story with that, but I, I'm sure you knew him way prior to that here. He'd come through the Florida territory, Bobby Shane. I think he started again, like some of these other guys in the early sixties. So it worked quite a while before, you know, you broke in, but um, I've, I've seen there's maybe some issues between you two. So I was curious to share some stories about you and Bobby Shane. Well, yeah, we did have some contact, and it was all, unfortunately, it was all negative. I talked uh, in a past episode about the night of the uh, Bayfront uh, Golden Circle, the $20 ringside, where oh, yeah. afterwards, uh, Jack Briscoe and I were meeting. Uh, he was coming to my place and uh, with my wife, and 
uh, Miss Sherry, uh, Bobby's valet, uh, uh, yeah, valet, slave girl, whatever. Jack was meeting her, and I think that Bobby knew that, and I don't think he liked it because he was he was cold to me and Jack. I mean, not he. he he was able to do it. I mean, the guy was professional. He grew up in the business. His father was a referee. So he, I mean, right. he knew about wrestling business from a very early age. And he was professional, but, and he was never really friendly to anybody in the dressing room or whatever. He's very businesslike, but he never went out of his way. I mean, I worked a match with him and I don't remember anything about it or about him. But where we butted heads, Eddie Graham asked me to go to Australia for him. He and Fuller had taken over Australia. They bought a pig and a poke from Jim Barnett or switched <laughs> or traded or whatever. <laughs> and uh, so uh, they had found uh, a guy named Tony Coloni, who was uh, had an auto agency or something in Australia, was, uh-huh. who had bought, had purchased the, uh, the territory from him, which <laughs> when you're buying a territory, what are you buying? You don't own the buildings. You don't own, you know. You don't own a TV. You're buying, basically, you're buying a ring or two. And uh, so anyway, uh, (laughs) I don't know if Colony wasn't making payments or what. He might. I'm still thinking of why why Graham wanted me to go over there. Uh, But he wanted me to find out how business was doing because Colony might have been paying him, like, payments, you know, instead of paying him everything up front. Maybe there was a back-end payment that he was uh, starting, he was losing money, that he was starting to, uh, you know, not pay Graham. So Graham wanted me to go over there and, and find out, you know, be work there for a while and see how business was. He guaranteed me uh, 1400 bucks a week. Uh, this was in 1974. So uh, Wow, that's a, that's a lot of money, Bob. Yeah, it's good money. It's good money back then. So I'd had a run in Texas, and, you know, I'd gotten to where I could, I could I could work, and I think I'd gotten my red, white, and blue gimmick. So I was in Japan having a good good tour there, and I got a I got a call from I think it was Graham, was saying that my tour to uh, Australia was canceled because. And I said, well, why? He said, well, apparently you've got some history, some kind of a drug history, criminal history, and drugs there. I said, that's, that's absolutely not true. I said, I was never arrested, never. And then nobody, I now, did we do drugs over there? Yes. But Barnett, <laughs> I mean, I'm not talking about heroin or whatever, but right. everybody, everybody smoked pot or hash or something. <laughs> I remember about after my first three weeks there, one morning I wasn't stoned and Mark Lewin walked up to me and looked me in the eye and said, oh, oh, you're on something, aren't you? Because <laughs> First time he see my eyes look that way. Every other time he see me, I'd been not stoned, but you know, a little high. Oh, so it was like the so, opposite. <laughs> well, I mean, over there, everybody was doing it. Ken Curtis had what he claimed to be acid. He was, you know, he'd give out like ah, and he wouldn't indiscriminate about it. But uh, they talked about it. I mean, Ken told me a story about coming back from. Uh, they do a tour of uh, Kuala Lumpur and and these Asia, you know, Singapore and Hong Kong, and they come back. He said they come back in the country, and he said in the passport, the little purse that your are not purse, but wallet, like it'd be about the size of a cell phone, maybe a little bigger, that your passport would go in. He said on the other in the other side of it, they would have, he said he had a brick of, of the best hash he could find, and that was wrapped up in, you know, something where you couldn't smell it, 
and he had that stuff in there, and he pulled his passport out of the other side to hand it to the Australian passport people. But Barnett had a, a arrangement with the customs there that when I went in the country, I never went through customs. There was always someone from the office to meet me, and we just walked from the gate out to the out to the vehicle to go, to, you know, go into Sydney. Mm-hmm. So. Anyway, I'm telling that story because of the fact that drugs were just, they were there. I mean, everybody had them. Right. And I'd already started smoking pot uh, in my own life. I mean, anybody out there wants to, you know, give me a hard time. I never, I never got anywhere near like marijuana or anything until I was 27 years old. It wasn't like I was some kid doing it when I was 10 years old. <laughs> Now, you know, I'd already been in the so service, gradu- graduated from college. It wasn't like I was some drug addict or anything. But if this was common uh, knowledge. Why, yeah. does it, why does it get pinned on you? Like, wh- wh- I'm, su- I'm sure you're going to tell us. I'm, just, I'm, I'm sitting here dumbfounded. Like, I don't understand where, where this drug thing comes about. Well, people say, look, you're an Olympian. You're rep- you represented the United States. You're a veteran. You know, you did honorable discharge. For, you know, you should be out there, you know, doing, but wait a minute, there were people, there were a lot of people doing, uh, at that time, the, the flower power, the uh, oh, yeah. hate Asbury, there were kids out there that were tripping out every day on acid, and uh, and certainly smoking was like uh, that breakfast cereal, so uh, yeah, it was it was part of the culture then, but anyway, we were, we were, that was going on in Australia, but there was never any, there was never any episode with the police, ever. Okay. Mm-hmm. Or even saw a policeman about it, and it wasn't like I was carrying a bunch of dope around me in my bag, or any of the guys were. Okay. So uh, I mean, some of them might have been, but I, you know, I, I know I was never carrying any. I wasn't going to carry it on the airplane. So anyway, uh, I've got another couple of weeks in in Japan, and then I'm not booked because uh, Australia's been canceled. I'm not booked anywhere for I think six weeks. So. All I knew at that time, the way the wrestling business was, that if it got out that I got canceled from Australia because of criminal record from some kind of drug problem, that would be on my record forever. I'd never, anybody in the business that wanted to knock me, and believe me, there's plenty of people in the business that are looking to knock somebody. Being a booker, uh, they want if you're not putting them on top, they're going to knock you, even if they're making good money. I knew that that was going to be on my record. And so I didn't know exactly what to do with it. But uh, when it came time to go, my Japan tour ended, instead of going back to the States, I thought, and I don't know why, I, I don't know, if, I don't want to say fade or, I'm not exactly sure, but I want to stay in that part, of, I want to stay in that part of the world close to Australia, a lot closer than the United States. So I went to Hong Kong. I stayed in Hong Kong for a few days. And while I'm in Hong Kong, just, you know, you talk about fate. Now, here's fate. While I'm in Hong Kong, I'm in the Hyatt Hotel on Kowloon across the, the, take the ferry across to the island or on mainland China. And I'm in the Hyatt Hotel and I run into a guy in the lobby who comes up and says, Bob Roop, you know, and I said, well, yes, who are you? He happened to be the wine steward for not just for the hotel. But also for the governor, the British governor of Hong Kong, when he had parties and things, this guy was the, who handled the wine selections and the servings and all that at the governor's soirees, uh, his parties and things. So this guy was a was pretty well connected. 
Nice guy. He was Indian, you know, from India. Nice guy, intelligent, very charming. First thing he did, I had a I had a relatively inexpensive room that was like halfway, fourth or fifth floor, uh, was facing away from the bay. Uh, he immediately had my room changed for no price, no extra cost, to where I'm up in a, not the penthouse, but up in one of the top floors where my view is out over the whole bay. It's like the, the kind of the window you're looking at in a movie when you're looking at that bay in, in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. That's the view I had. So, I mean, nice guy. And um, I we're talking, and with, I don't know, in a day or two, I had breakfast with him and different things. And after a day or two, uh, I told him what my problem was. And I told him how he knew me. Uh, the TV from Australia came in there, and he'd seen me on Australian TV. That's how he recognized me. Oh, okay. From earlier visits. I'd been in Australia twice before that. So the reason I'm giving his background, like with the British, the governor and all that, was this guy had connections. He knew people in the uh, Australian embassy. So he set me up with an appointment to the Australian embassy. I went and met with these guys over there, gave my passport and told them, I said, I've been told that I'm barred from your country because of a, a, a drug. I said, I, as far as I know, I was never arrested. I was never given a charge or tried. I've never uh, deported from the country. I've never had a problem. You can see I have exit stamps for both visits I had there. I've got exit stamps on my path. Well, these two guys checked, and they said, well, no, you don't have a record. You don't have anything. I said, well, can you get me an uh, entry? Can you get me in Australia? They said, yeah, sure we can. You know, they were helping, doing a favor for their buddy. They're going to get a good bottle of wine next time. But so I stopped in Kuala Lumpur for a couple of days. And then I went ahead and flew into Australia. And I didn't let anybody know I was coming. I just flew in there, <laughs> took a taxi from the airport to the I found out that the wrestling office was the same one that Jim Barnett had all those years. That Tony Coloni took over the same apartment. It was an apartment right across the street from the Texas Tavern where all the boys hung out. And I went to the Texas Tavern. I mean, I went to the place across the street. I went up to the floor, the same floor, 11, whatever, 12, 13, <laughs> whatever floor it was. Knocked on the door. And I heard this voice say, come in. I walked in. And this man I'd never seen before sitting behind a desk and leaning over the desk like he'd been talking to him is Bobby Shane. And uh, Bobby, the guy behind the desk had no expression. He had no, he didn't know who I was. He had no clue who I was. And Bobby Shane, his jaw, his jaw dropped about a, at least three or four inches. Like, yeah, it's like he was looking How like hell. <laughs> how could he? How could this guy possibly be here? So I walked, you know, I walked in and uh, entered. This, I went up to the guy, this Mr. Tony Coloni. I said, "My name's Bob Roop. Yeah, I was uh, booked over here, and you know, I was told that you know I couldn't get in the country because I had a drug problem of some kind." I said, "That's not the case." So I mean, look, I'm here. Here's my entry, my my entry stamp here on my passport. I was welcome here with open arms, so I'm showing up here. I'm showing up and ready to go to work. And that's that's the reason I waited a couple of days, because I wasn't due to start for okay. another day or two. So you know, Bobby Shane couldn't say, wasn't going to say anything. Now, here's what I'm going to say, and uh, rest in peace, Bobby. But who possibly could have blocked me? Who would have blocked me? 
I mean, Cavani didn't know me. Why would he right. block me? Right. I have so many questions here. For the one, only person- was, was there any crosswords or any interaction prior to this with Bobby Shane? A bad match, an argument in the locker room, maybe you guys, uh, you know, I, I don't even know. I, was there anything, any inclination that would make you go, maybe he did it for this, even though, you know, it didn't seem like much to you? Or was this just completely out of the blue? And, and, and again, you're just assuming it was Bobby because he's really the only person in the position to do this because he's in Australia and he's also working with Eddie Grant. Well, he's the booker for Colony. And, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, okay, he's the booker. Okay. Yeah, he's well, the booker. So, so that's one thing. I've, I've got some experience at booking. And I don't think, I don't know if he was worried about that. But I told you, I think that the deal with his second was Nasheri was humiliating to him that she was, because, you know, she and Jack were, you know, more than just friends. And, and right. uh, you know, she was still his second. And I think he, I don't know, maybe he's pissed off about it. I don't know. But I know he was never any way more than just uh, a matter of fact. I mean, he wasn't, he was appropriate because he was smart. This guy was a, Shane was a very smart guy and very good in the business. So he was appropriate, but I never felt one. I, I have feelings and sensitivities. I never felt one iota of any kind of warmth from him. And I didn't have any hostility towards him. He hadn't done anything to me. I I didn't care. About, I mean, the thing with Sherry and Jack and him had nothing to do with me. Right. But it did because Jack and well, I were buddies. You can't screw with the NWA world champion, though, right? You got you got to pick on his buddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the so. thing is, I knew about it. And, right. and so. Maybe he didn't want me over there to tell the story. I don't know. Maybe he's sad. Because <laughs> that's what you're going to talk about in Australia? <laughs> well, some of the boys would have. Well, some okay. of the boys would have. Fair enough. Fair enough. I uh, guess might, so. might, might Telephone, telegraph, telewrestler. I get it. Exactly. <laughs> that might have been. Because I'm looking for reasons myself. So. <laughs> so you made Colony it to Australia. <laughs> Colony says, uh, okay, well, good. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad you're here and all that. And he's very friendly and nice and everything. Not look good. I was uh, about two twenty five, two thirty. I was in great shape. Uh, had all my hair, teeth, and all that. And uh, so I go over to and check into the Texas Tavern. And about two hours later, I get a call, and it's Colony again, and he's drunk. And he says, uh, "Yeah, I didn't know who you were, but now he said uh, I, I'm not paying. I said I can't pay you fourteen hundred bucks." A week, he said. No, I can't. I, I'm not going to do that. I said, What can you pay me? He said, I can pay six hundred bucks a week. Wow. Well, he thought, thought there's no way in a million years I'd take that. I said, I'll take it. <laughs> and so, so something transpired over those two hours. Obviously, well, I, I, I get you saying that he didn't know who you were when recognize you your your face when you walked in the door, but certainly being the promoter. He knew that there was a guy that was supposed to come named Bob Roop and get paid $1,400. So when you walked in, I get that he didn't recognize you, but there's no way that when, he, when you were in the office that he didn't realize that, oh, you're Bob Roop. Great to have you. You're the $1,400 guy. So it took him a couple hours to get drunk and maybe have some conversations, I'm, I'm assuming. And that's, that's what led to this. Well, I'm thinking, that, I'm thinking that after I left, I mean, this is just a trip. I don't know this at all. Right. But when you try to put together, I mean, Cloney didn't know me from Adam. I've never met him, never heard of him. He never, I mean, he maybe heard of my name, but I mean, he he wasn't a wrestling person. Right. So I was just another person, name, a talent, you know, or whatever. And that wasn't, no, nobody special. 
the fourteen hundred bucks that was that was top money. But I don't know, Graham sold him on paying me that because he, you know, when I talked to him in the office, uh, the money didn't come up. But I said, I'm here to start work. And, you know, I'm here, I, you know. Well, it's, uh, it's peculiar that he had agreed to this money. And now that you're here, it's cut more than in half. So that that's kind of weird because why would he why would he have even told you to come over? If the money was that off, why why does he all of a sudden not want you to work the card? So I'm assuming you you you're speculating as to uh, maybe somebody else got involved here. Well, he was a car dealer. Uh, you know, Jim Barnett was had been in the wrestling business for 20 years by the time he went to Australia. So you know, he was an experienced promoter. This guy didn't know anything about promoting wrestling. He knew how to promote selling cars, but he didn't know how to promote wrestling. So uh, whatever Shane told him. Now who else is going to tell him? There wasn't anybody else over there that, I mean, I knew guys, but Miriam Milano and Spiros Arian and the, the Greek and the Italian right. uh, stalwarts, the guys that were there to represent those ethnic groups. Right. Uh, they were buddies of mine. You know, they, were, they weren't going to say anything uh, nasty about me. There wasn't anybody there but Shane to do it. Because who would, who would have even started it? There was no drug thing. <laughs> so we're, we're what a random thing to come up with. I guess that's one way to, there's not a lot of ways to prevent you from coming there, but I guess something that of, of that magnitude would make sense. It just seems a bit ludicrous to, you know, to go that far, to keep somebody from, from wrestling somewhere for six weeks. I mean, it's just, it's well, instead of just, why doesn't Bobby, it, let's just say that's what the situation is, that he doesn't want you here. Why doesn't he just tell Eddie Graham from the fucking get-go Eddie, I don't get along with Bob. Even if he, even if he, you don't have an issue with him, he's he's the booker. I, I really don't want him over here right now. Why not just do that instead of go through all these ridiculous hoops? Well, because Eddie would have. Eddie was one Bobby's uh, associate in ownership. He was an employee. Bobby was was connected with if whatever connection he had with Championship Wrestling for Florida, whatever it was, whether it was like dormant at that time, he wanted to keep his place there strong so when it was time to come back he'd have a place to go back to where he was over okay you know he could start right back on top again when he came back so he wasn't going to burn that bridge he wanted to tell eddie anything and there was no way he could knock me to eddie eddie was the one that sent me there and i don't know if bobby knew that but he couldn't tell eddie well how can you tell a promoter oh so and so i can't don't get along so we're not going to be able to work together I, I don't know. I don't know if I've ever heard of that happen in the right. business. Have you? Well, I mean, I, I wasn't in the business like that, so I can't yeah. say. But I don't know that there's any stories out there like that. I'm sure when you had the power of a maybe a Dusty Rhodes or something, you'd want somebody to come in, or maybe you wanted to demote somebody on the card. You could you could get away with something like that. But in, in general, no, you don't you don't hear a tell of that. But so that takes me to a completely different question. Bobby Shane aside, Eddie Graham, who had known you for several years now. He takes Bobby Shane. Let's just say it was Bobby who went to Eddie and told him this story or in whoever it was. Anybody told him this story. Why is he taking this person's word over yours? Not saying he should take yours over theirs, but when he confronts you about it, like you can't go there because of this. And you say, no, that's not true. Why is he not buying it? Why, why, does, why doesn't Eddie trust your word at all here? It just seems so odd. It's like, well, this person told me this. So this is what I'm going with. Well, shouldn't we check this out, Eddie? I have a way to prove it. I can go to Australia and show you. And it, it just seems weird. I think what 
Eddie got was a fait accompli in the sense that whoever, whether it might be Colony, uh, Shane might have had Colony call him okay. or, or suggested and say, look, I've got this stuff about Bob Roop. He's this is hypothetical. I'm not, I have no idea this happened. Hypothetical is the way it could have happened. He, says, he tells Colony, I got this information about Bob Roop that uh, he's going to be a drug problem. You know, he's got, a, he's got a record here with drugs. He's going to have trouble getting in the country. And so, you know, it's going to be a problem. And maybe Colony, I think about this. Colony's being told the guy's coming in. He's going to have to pay 1400 bucks a week. And then Colony told Graham, hey, I don't want the guy because he's got a drug problem or whatever. And what was Graham, what was Graham going to say to him? He's trying to get Colonial's him money. Eddie doesn't owe him money. Colonial's him money. He, Eddie wasn't going to tell the guy to F off because he wanted, he wanted the guy to pay him. So he was going to try to keep the peace. I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of things, but I just know that the one person that was in position to to make this happen was Bobby Shane. Okay. I, there was nobody else to, available to do it. Let me flesh it out about what happened, and and maybe that'll give you some more ideas about who did what. Okay. I I went back to the uh, I got the phone call, and I uh, I said, oh yeah, I'll take you six hundred. I was hot. I mean, I was, you know, he had humiliated me as far as I was concerned. You know, he said, you aren't worth that. And all, you know, he's telling me all this horrible crap. And, you know, where did he get it from? I mean, where did he get well, that's, that That's from? what I was curious. He, he, he uh, had to get clearly it originally. Yes. Well, he clearly originally agreed to this price. Now, all of a sudden, he thinks you're not worth it. Why? Somebody had to have put that in his head. Yeah, he, he agreed. Eddie Graham told him I was worth it. And I was. <laughs> Let me finish the story. So. I was hot, but rather than calling Graham, I was going to call. Oh, I, I left something out. Very critical. He told me. He being Tony? Uh, you know, Tony Coloni, the okay. promoter who just called me and told me that I wasn't worth 1400 bucks. And I said, well, that's what Eddie Graham told me I was contracted to get. And he said, F Eddie Graham. You know, blah, 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 and some more things about him. Well, <laughs> so anyway, I'm still booked. Now I'm booked because I accepted he offered me a job of 600 bucks a week, and I took it. So he's stuck. He, he can't tell. He can't he can't fire me now. I mean, I guess he could have, but uh, then it would have really, really been obvious. But so anyway, I made a tape. I had a I had a Sony tape deck, and I made a tape. And I, I waited until I calmed down a little bit, and I made a tape. But I put in there all the salient details. But I just told you. And I put in the part about it, you know, what he said about it. I said, hey, Eddie, I, I thought you had a, a relationship with this guy, but he basically said, F you. You didn't have the wherewithal to be able to you know, get me in here. I tell, you, I tell you what, though, because you asked me to put things over for you, I took 600 bucks a week. That's less than I made the first time I came here as a rookie. And so I'm going um, to stay here. And see what, you know, and, and I'll let you know what's going on in the, in the house shows and all that on TV. I sent, I put all that on a tape and I mailed it to him. You know what, it's going to take a week to get there or whatever. Uh, and I went to work. Now, I was in good shape and I was doing stuff. Harley had, Harley Race had shown me this thing where, and Flair used to do it a few times, where you get whipped into a corner and you hook your arm around, your right arm around, the, the well, you could use the left, but most guys, you your right arm around the top rope and you flip completely over the ropes. Right. Bounce off the apron and land on the floor. Mm -hmm. I was taking bumps like that. I mean, I was doing some good stuff. 
And I went out there and I was really motivated now. I went out there and I worked like, and I mean, I did jobs, but it didn't matter. Uh, within a couple a couple uh, shows, uh, they were putting me over because I'm working here now. Shane says, well, I'm stuck. Well, I can't fire him. He's not doing right. anything. Right. I was having these great matches. Anyway, uh, a couple of weeks go by and uh, I get a call from Graham. And he said, uh, tell that mf to, you know, give your notice and you come back here and, you know, I'll make it up to you and all that. But I had gotten a chance to look at the house, how business was doing and, and trying to evaluate how much Colony was would be able to, uh, to pay him, you know, in terms of what he still owed him. I had a chance to look at all the houses. And what, one of the sad things about it was that I gave my notice and I still had a couple. You give when you gave notice, it was you always give two weeks because you're booked two weeks ahead. So the advertising is always already there for the matches for you know, for the next couple of weeks, mm -hmm. the, the posters and all that have already been made and all that. So you work out your, you know, you don't leave and have them to have to do no shows about your, with your matches. That's why you give the two week notice. So I worked another couple of weeks and about halfway through the third week, uh, I, I see, happened to see Colonial alone somewhere. He said, Hey, I, I wish you didn't have to go. And, you know, he was kind of, you know, feeling me out. You know, and I was young, young then, and now I have all these 50 years of reflections and look back and say, ah, why didn't I go ahead and say, well, okay, for, you know, pay me my 1400 bucks a week and, and I'll stick around. That would have been a way to kind of shove it down Shane's throat, but, uh, but I didn't. I was, you know, I was still a little playing a little hurt feelings guy and I ended up going ahead and leaving. But, you know, the, the thing about me being, having a drug, drug charge added to my record uh, didn't happen. And that's the main thing that came out of that. Okay. Now, when I saw Shane back in the United States, obviously the night that, you know, that he passed away, we were working on the same car down there in Miami and there were no hard feelings. I mean, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't going to, what are you going to do? Beat right. the guy up? I mean, you know, we're in a business together. You, well, you know, do, you, do you think maybe that Shane had some sort of an inclination that, Eddie Graham was sending you down there as a, I don't want to I call it a spy, kind of let him know what's going on. And maybe Shane thought, you know, had you went down there, you could have reported something negative about him. Could that have been anything to do with it? He didn't want you there, but he, did, he didn't want you going back and telling Eddie that, man, Bobby's booking is, you know, it's not drawing it or something. I'm just saying, I'm not saying that's even what you would have said, but in his mind, it's potentially what you could do. So maybe I'm thinking, I mean, obviously I wasn't anywhere near this scenario, but is there any possibility that he thought, man, I know why Bob's coming down here and, you know, I don't need that. So I'm going to figure out a way to keep him from getting here. Well, you know, you bring up a good point. Shane had, uh, these guys have this Tony Colony. Uh, it was like a opening the bank vault. Uh, I think Ken Curtis got a, got spent $3,000. He ran out of, uh, he ran out of supplies of his special treatment. Uh, his, sure. His, yeah. And he, he flew back to uh, his sources back in Hawaii. So Kalani paid to fly him back to get the special medication, which was highly illegal, and uh, <laughs> paid for it And because he didn't know any better. He thought that was something that, that was part of the, of the, of the business. So these guys, were, these guys were milking him dry. You know, he was, I guess, a multimillionaire who had 
made money selling vehicles, selling, doing something. And so I don't know how deep his pockets went. You know, these guys, are, you know, I heard all kinds of stories about the money that he spent on Lewin, you know, Lewin and before Shane got in there. So maybe Shane had this really great thing going. And he, he thought maybe Graham, what you said, there's politics that maybe he thought Eddie was sending me in there to try to get the book away from Bobby. And maybe before I ever even got there, he thought that was the reason I was being sent there. So he, he was going to head that off by putting out a rumor about my having a problem, a drug problem. You know, again, I don't know. It's all speculation. But I was kind of uh, happily surprised to run into the wine steward in Hong Kong and to be able to wow, go to You want to talk about fate. I don't know if I've oh, ever yes. heard of a, <laughs> such fate. Oh, my goodness. What a luck. Oh, I got to tell you about another one. While I was in Hong Kong, China's got a 4,000-year-old written history of their culture, 4,000 years. This country's 300 years old. They've got 4,000 4, years of written history. You're talking about a country has been around for a while. You know, and they had, I'm sure they, they, were, they were around long before they started writing their history down. So this is a country that's got a lot, you know, it's been around. It's a very, talk about a culture that's ingrained and has had so many different things happen to it and so many twists and, and every kind of genius and low and high and democracy type governments and warlords and all that. They've been through it all. The Great Wall of China. I mean, all the stuff that, that goes on there. What a country. Well, one of the things they had in Hong Kong, there was an emperor's palace, had 800 rooms in it. It had like six or eight stories above ground and four or five below ground that there was no longer the emperor's palace. They didn't have emperors anymore. What this, this, this building had become, the top four or five floors were residential, were apartments. Uh, the top two floors were uh, above street level were like, commercial shops that more like a J.C. Penney's or something like that. And the bottom four floors were all flea market, like little one-room shops. Mm -hmm. So now one of the great things about being in Hong Kong, but I hated being by myself. Not that I, I mean, I, I like my own company, but man, if you're going, if you're going someplace, it would be great to have you there, right? If you're going someplace like that, it's nice to enjoy it with somebody else. You know, I wish that oh, sure. my girlfriend could have been there, or one of the boys even, you know, but I was alone. It was okay. I'm looking for, in fact, you know, I'm looking for, I'm looking for that tape deck that I ended up taking to Australia and use a couple of weeks later uh, to send Eddie that tape. So I'm looking around and now again, 800 rooms in this place. And I'm down on not the bottom floor. I've been down there. Now that would be four stories below ground. There's like 40 shops on each floor. So I go up to the third floor, and I, in a, one corner of this third floor, I walk into this one room. It's like a 10 by 12 room. It's got all kinds of uh, recorders and things. And I walk into a room, and I, I see this tape deck. And I pick it up. I take it over to the desk, and I sit down at this desk. And this Indian guy looks up at me and says, Bob Roop. <laughs> <laughs> the Indians love Bob Roof. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? I mean, I, I one of the things I loved about Hong Kong was nobody knew me. I mean, uh, the the wine steward, because he was a little more cultured, you know, and 
Uh, but you know, I wasn't a big star even on on. I, I I went all over Hong Kong in complete anonymity because nobody knew me or recognized me. And this guy, well, you know what? <laughs> he didn't recognize me from Australian TV. It turns out he had been had spent prior years in the United States and had worked in a place in Fort Myers, Florida. Oh, so he knew you well. <laughs> yeah, and saw me on TV down there. But just think about it. You're in a 800-room yes, building. I, I see where you're going with this. Yeah, and you, you, you know, you're going up down in like one of the 800 rooms, and you walk in, and a guy calls you by name. I mean, in the middle of a city of like millions and millions of people. Billions. I made my job was to hit the floor. Like, what? Oh my yeah. God! Like the, the two people <laughs> that know you in the entire city, and you run into both of them. Yeah, Un unbelievable. Well, I mean, I, in that, I mean, isn't that unusual? I, I just like odds uh, of that happening are so slow. Yeah. But uh, yeah, when I saw Bobby back in the United States, like I say, we weren't friendly. I never had a beer with him. He I, he wasn't a guy that came to the Imperial Room after the Masters in Tampa. Okay. It would sit around and you could have a beer with guys, or and I never rode in a car with him. Sounds he like was, he was more business related. He was. Bobby okay. was very, very sharp. But and I hope, you know, the takeaway from all of this, too, is I hope that, you know, there's a lot of people that hear what they want to hear on, on podcasts, Bob. Not just yours, a whole lot of them, because I've seen, you know, people repeat things and leave things out. I hope people, you know, get a whiff of the entire story you're telling here, not just the, the possibilities that may have happened over there in Australia, but you're really putting him over here hardcore. As a, a, he was great for the business. He was a, you know, great worker. He was, you know, intelligent. You know, yeah. Yeah. So in a businessman, which is not necessarily a bad thing. He wasn't one of the, the boy boys. He wasn't out there partying and things with you guys, but he, he had a level head on his shoulder to some degree, it sounds like. And you're not really sitting here saying that damn Bobby Shane or anything like that. Like you said, this is after Australia and, you know, you had no issues with him and working in the locker room with her or anything like that. So I just I wanted to no. point that out. I wanted to recap this entire story here before people just pick and choose what they want out of it. Well, I, I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, I mean, one of the things that it, it helps to do is Put yourself in someone else's place. Now, I wouldn't. Now, Bobby was in Australia. I'm not sure where he was at. And, uh, and I, again, I don't know what might have been going on between the uh, colony might have shared the promoter that had bought the pig in the poke. Uh, Eddie Graham and Buddy Fuller sold him the, the pig that they bought from uh, from Barnett. Barnett. Right. I don't know what was going on between them. And I don't know what kind of politics and dirty dealing and whatever that because Colony never talked to me. Now, Barnett used to talk to me all the time when I was in Australia. And we'll get into that because some of it's pretty funny. But oh, uh, Colony never, you know, the only time he ever talked to me, I think, was when he asked me about if I could stay. I worked my butt off for him. You know, I mean, I put it out every night. I, I gave him a good show every night. And when I left, I did jobs right in the middle of the ring for people and believable. You know, I mean, maybe believable. So he had nothing to complain about. That was my way of, again, now, now here I can bring out a little nastiness. That was my way of showing him that Bobby Shane was wrong about me, what, or whoever. Let's right. not say Bobby. Let's say whoever right. was wrong about me. Obviously, I wasn't on drugs, and obviously, I was a good talent. Uh, I don't know what was being said about my ability in the rank, but I had good masters and got great reactions. I could have gone over, I could have stayed there and and worked and been on top for, I don't know, a year or two, maybe. But uh, If Colony was around for a year or two after that, I was going to say, well, we, the, the thing about this whole thing is Bob Roop continues to wrestle. I don't know how much longer Colony continues to promote. <laughs> well, 
Well, I don't either. But you know, the business the business is picking up. I mean, after the first week, Shane had no choice but to uh, a book start booking me in. You know, and you work Sydney and Melbourne every week. I was there for a total of five weeks. By week two, I was over. Plus, I'd been there before, but now I was I was a new it was a new rendition. And by that time, I was over. I was helping draw money. I wasn't the main event. I was, you know, the people were reacting to the matches. So my name on the marquee meant something on the promotional side. So, um, and I could, uh, I'm not saying I, I couldn't have done it by myself, but, you know, uh, Mario Milano and Spiros Arion, they were steady draws for uh, Mario for the Italian populations. You know, certain cities had certain demographic groups, and those guys were, Mario was the, uh, token Italian and and uh, Spiros was a token Greek. Yeah, the Iron uh, Greek. They were, I mean, yeah, he, they were he even got over up in New York, you know, for the for the Greeks up there. So yeah, he. Oh yeah. He made the rounds. Oh, got, and then uh, when they were done making, you know, letting him run a baby face up there, he worked Bruno. And man, the crowd noise in those matches is deafening. <laughs> it's just unbelievable. So Arian knew what he was doing in there. Oh, he's a good talent. Yeah, and he's a good guy too. I mean, I I like. No, he was a little bit reserved, but I don't blame him. When I first came in there, he was a veteran, and I was, you know, barely able to lace up my boots right. So, you know, I understand. But then by the time the, the time I came around in 74, uh, he had seen the, the, the you know, progression. Right. So he was, you know, he was much more open and friendly. I kind of made it into the trade, so to speak, where he felt like uh, I was a colleague. Oh, now. this guy's so still here. He, maybe he gets a, few, a thing or two by this point. I, I see. <laughs> I, see, I see how that works. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's pretty cool. Well, um, Bob, I've been on, I, we, maybe if you got time, we could hit on one more name or we can call it quits now. Totally up to you. Oh, let's keep talking. All right, well, uh, we'll, yeah. we'll, fit, we'll fit one more name in here and people are going to pop. They're going to appreciate you saying that, Bob, because the next name on my list is a guy by the name of Frank Goodish, a.k.a. Bruiser Brody. And uh, you've told me a couple times, and I did not know this. I had, to, in fact, I called you into question, Bob. I went myself and I did some research to make sure this was accurate because I didn't want people going, "That's not true." So I went and looked it up, and you are absolutely one hundred percent correct. I apologize for doubting you. You had his very first matches. Okay, you, you wrestled Bruiser Brody, the rookie breaking into the business down in Dallas. Yeah, they were doing a at. Uh... The Hall of Fame in Waterloo uh, won, I think, a year before last. They were doing a tribute to him. And I went in there. Uh, Stan Hansen had been his partner in Japan. Mm -hmm. uh, those guys just, I mean, they were big, big draws over there. And Barbara Goodish, uh, Frank's wife, uh, right. Bruce's wife, uh, and four or five other people were sitting in chairs in front of an audience of maybe 100, 150 people. And I, my two boys were with me that year, and the three of us went in there and were watching uh, the presentation. And they said a bunch of nice things about about Frank. And you know, I thought uh, I thought it was good to mention. I and I had a reason I wanted to mention it. So when they asked if the audience had any questions, uh, I raised my hand and I asked, "Would anybody know for sure?" I, I said, "I'm not sure, but I think I had his first match." And there's a reason other than just like, "Oh wow, I had his first match." Uh, somebody said, yeah, somebody knew. They said, yeah, you did. I said, that's what I thought. I said, the reason I'm even asking this question is because I don't remember it. Now, a lot of times <laughs> people would say, people would say, well, well, that's real nice. You had Bruce Brody's first match. You know, you remember it. 
Well, that's really saying he's a piece of crap, isn't it? No, it's not. It's saying the exact opposite. The reason I don't remember Masters is because they went well. They went well. I remember the Masters that stunk. I remember the Masters where somebody got hurt. I worked against Bruiser Brody, Frank Goodish, in his first match, big, strong, 300 pounds. They say 6'8", but I think it's more like maybe 6'6", six, six or whatever. I worked his first match with him, and it, I don't remember it, so it means it went well. It went. It was a good match because uh, the stinker rose. I still remember. I still remember a match with Dale Lewis and walking back <laughs> to uh, in Miami back to the dressing room and people saying, "Ah, you need to quit. You get in some other line of work." <laughs> Stank. <laughs> yeah, I remember. I remembered uh, the fact that I didn't remember it was a tribute, and I just wanted to point that out. He was a natural. He he was. He was just a natural. So I, I was able to do that. We never had much contact during his career. He hooked up with, when I went into Atlanta in the early 80s, mm-hmm. uh, he was in there with Buck Robley. And Buck was Buck had been booking. Uh, that's when Buck came to me with uh, this go opposition. Right. Uh, I guess he thought, because I'd tried it twice before, that I would be game to, you know. And, and, yeah. and Buck put me in a horrible place. Because Ole Anderson had hired me there, and Ole Anderson was paying me a, a very good salary to be there. Or, you know, be, so I had a guaranteed income. I was there to help in the office. And then Buck comes to me and says, hey, we're going to try to take this from it. You know, why don't you join us? I was so stupid of him. Was it you I told about one way to keep something secret is not tell anybody Everybody, about yes. it? Yes, yeah, that was Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, you know, and I, I told Buck, I said, man, I wish you hadn't told me, asked me that, you know. And so I, I told Ole, I said, yeah, you're about to have a, a, you know, a takeover here. Now, a lot of guys might want to say, well, you're a stooge. No, I respected Ole. And I didn't respect Buck for doing that because Ole wasn't Roy Shire and Ole wasn't Ron Fuller, who was stealing money from me. Ole was somebody I respected. He was. He was a stand-up guy. Amateur wrestler himself, tough guy. And think about this. When he was booking in the Carolinas, he was also booking Atlanta. He was booking like six or seven towns a night. And who does that? I never heard of any booker that could do that. So I respected this guy's ability. I mean, I, I'm talking about somebody really had it together. Right. And Ole was, was a straight shooter. He didn't drink. He didn't smoke. Uh, it wasn't he? He wasn't a, like a Puritan, or you know, a, a, you know, right. he didn't care what you did. He just, he just had other you shit to do. <laughs> You're that busy yeah, booking, was, man. You really don't have time to drink. I mean, you could drink, but I don't know how how well the, the houses would do. And it's all about making the money. <laughs> so well, he had yeah, he has six kids and a family, and he and he he wanted to make money, and he did. He was a multi-millionaire by he was, time. Yeah, he did well. I, so I, how I, can you I, not I respect heard, that? No, you have to respect self-made man. Who went out there well, and got it done? I mean, he did tell it like it was, whether people liked it or not. You know, that was Ole Anderson. But at the end of the day, you can't really argue success. Well, I told Ole that Buck had made a uh, offered me a job. He said, "Doing what?" I said, "Working here." <laughs> he said, oh, really? He said, "Oh, okay." So uh, that night or the next night, whatever, that's the show in Atlanta. I went to the bar that the guys went to, and I walked up, and Buck was standing there. And here's where Frank Goodish comes in, or, or Bruiser. Yeah. Bruiser's there with him. 
And Bruiser was part of this plan to take over all these... Uh, I know, yeah, I know they were buddies, and whenever Buck went, he would typically book uh, Bruiser in there, whether it was San Antonio for Joe Blanchard, or prior to this in Georgia, when Robley had the book there back in 81, he would book Bruiser in there as well. So I, yeah. Yeah, I know that they had like some sort of a friendship. Well, you know, and uh, when I went in the bar... Buck was up at the at the bar, and Frank was or uh, Bruiser was with him. Well, I wasn't going to avoid him. I walked up to him. I, I mean, I didn't know the way he talked to him, but <laughs> I walked up to him, and you know, he's looking at me, and he said, "Buck said something like, uh, oh, Bobby says I, you know, he said I can't believe you, whatever.'" I said, "Buck, I said you really need to learn the business if you're going to try to do something like what you're trying to do." Nobody knows better than you, Bob. <laughs> oh, believe me. I, I had to both places where I tried it. I had two guys, but there were guys that were backing Roy Shire and backing Ron Fuller. They weren't backing. I was backing someone that had been good to me. Now maybe Roy had been good to those guys, and maybe Ron would be good. Had been good to, uh, Slater. but he had Ron hadn't been the person who had been good to Dick Slater was me. Uh, Ron Fuller didn't do any favors for. Dick Schuler, who well, we haven't gotten there yet, but that was so. Anyway, uh, I don't feel guilty about that. I don't feel like a stooge. I feel like a stand-up guy. And when Buck was talking to me, Frank uh, Bruce Brody was standing behind him, about and fairly close, and like glaring at me. And I looked at him. I looked him right in the eye. You know, I didn't say anything. I didn't say, hey, you know, hey, what are you looking at? I just looked at him and then looked back at Buck. I said, you really, you know, Buck, you really need to learn the business. You're going to be trying to do what you're trying to do. And uh, what I should have said is that you don't tell anybody until you get it done. But, sure. <laughs> uh, but you know, and I don't know, I don't know how uh, Goodish might never have had any use for me after that. I don't know. However, for a guy that showed such blatant disregard for promoters, Right. You know, as he did. And I admired it. I admired the heck out of the guy. Uh, he did what I wish I could have done. I didn't have the talent he did. I didn't have that kind of, you know, that wild man, that sure. size, yeah. that look, and if all that. And If and, he didn't like shit, he just packed up and left. He didn't need it. Go back to Japan well, he, and make all the money in the world. Yeah, and the problems he had. I mean, he would hurt guys. You know, he'd be in matches with people. And that they sometimes they were afraid of him, or you know they believed his his shtick, and they right. they would. Uh, and sometimes he just got ignorant, like with Luger. Uh, one match, <laughs> he just stopped. He just wouldn't do anything. You know, right. it's like the film stops or the movie, except only stops for one guy. Everybody else <laughs> is still playing their part. Right, and it really stands out. So yeah, he was he was really wrong in that one because it it didn't it just didn't and it didn't just embarrass Luger, it really hurt the town. It hurt Miami, you know, to do that because it kind of showed that things were, you know, it was a work. Right. But anyway, yeah, that's just that, you know, if you're going to do something, do it in a dressing room or, you know, out there, you know, out in the field somewhere. Don't, don't, because you hurt everybody out. You hurt all the other boys. He didn't just hurt Luger. He hurt everybody on the card the next week and the week after that when only half the people showed up because they said, well, they get such a lot. That's supposed to be a big cage match. But anyway, back to the bar with Buck Robley and, and uh, Bruiser Brody. Mm -hmm. so, you know, I had my I had my antennas out. You know, I had a couple of weapons, you know, close by, a pitcher of beer or something. 
a couple of things I could get my hands on if I needed to. I wouldn't worry about Robley. But of course, if you didn't worry about Frank Goodish, you're crazy. But I also knew that I also knew he was he wasn't an animal. He was a smart guy. Yeah, he's and well, I think a lot of people don't realize before he was a wrestler, he was a sports writer. Bruiser Brody was a sports writer, you know, before he broke into the business. So yeah, he was an educated man. You know what I found out just today, looking at the background? He was all state in football and basketball at uh, Warren High School here in Michigan. Oh, is that it's so? Not, not far from not far from Lansing. Yeah. Oh, okay. See, I knew he went yeah. to West Texas, but I didn't know where he went to high school. Yeah, he he migrated there from here. Yeah. Okay. So. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I never knew yeah, that I, either. Uh, well, I didn't either until today. I thought, well, my God, he grew up right around the corner from where I went to school. Wow. But yeah, he was a good guy, and and I don't blame him for being upset with me. And but you know, I had learned by that time that if you were going to make it in the wrestling business the way it was and the reason why wasn't because of anything to do except the wrestlers themselves what buck was going to find out if he did have success was that 99 out of every 100 wrestlers in the business was going to all of a sudden quit talking to him he was going to have he was going to find out the same thing that happened to us and the other thing was he didn't have any tv only had the TV. Only had. I was Roby going to take over, get Ted Turner to to accept him as opposed to Ole. Yeah. Well, Roby, <laughs> no I mean, way. that was kind of the last of Roby's real big runs there, as far as booking and things like that go. As far as he might have went back to, I don't know what year that would have been, because I, I know it's all you have to do is go look it up. You've talked about wrestling data in the past. You can see right about when that was when Roby and Brody were in there with you in Georgia. And you can see how they just disappear right right after that uh, conversation as well, right off the uh, roster abruptly. But, uh, you know, I, I was uh, I've been reviewing Mid-South, Bill Watts's Mid-South in 1986 on one of my other shows. And there were some interesting local promos commercial during the early part of 86. Robley on the TV doing commercials for his own wrestling promotion running against Bill Watts in Louisiana. And, uh, you know, needless wow. to say that it, it lasts, you know, just a few months. <laughs> he, he did have a bunch of names, I, mostly names that I thought had retired by that point. Now, whether they actually showed up on those cards, I have no idea. But yeah, so Robley was trying to make ends meet, you know, all the way to the end. I know he does some, uh, some of the underneath Georgia territories or in the Indies, if you will, in the late eighties and whatever, but, uh, Robley tried to hang around for as long as he could, but I know a lot of people, and you've told me that story off air, not the whole thing with Brody but the uh, the Buck Robley part off air before. And I was going to try to save that until after we got through Knoxville. That way we didn't hear a bunch of people calling you a hypocrite and blah, 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 because you turn around and, and tell on somebody. But this, I get what you're saying. The situation was completely different. Oli was, nobody was questioning Oli being a payoff guy. He was paying people, I guess, what, what they were worth. And uh, your situations with Shire was, well, first of all, he sounds like he was an asshole, which I think that's like the common denominator across the board. Even people that have defended him, they're like, yeah, Roy Shire was an asshole, but I disagree that he didn't pay well. So, you know, everybody agrees that Shire was a pretty nasty individual. And then, of course, you had, you know, extra issues along with that, especially working at his booker. And then Fuller, we'll get into it later, but long story short, you felt he was, you know, taking advantage of you guys there financially as well. Here, that's not so much the issue. It's uh, just uh, Buck Roby deciding that, hey, why don't we go into business here? Let's uh, try to run Ole out and... We'll do this thing. Well, you bring up you bring up some good points that, that you know if your way to work for Roy Shire is that you get make good money, even if you make good money, 
you have to let him humiliate you by calling you a stupid SOB in front of everybody, or even just by, you know, even just with you and him. You have to put up with that in order to make money. My God, what kind of, how could you live with yourself? Right. You know, I mean, it's just, to me, I mean, it's not having false pride or anything, but you're going out and making this guy's money, a lot more money than you're making, and he's going to call you a stupid SOB because you, you messed up a one move, but didn't kill the match. You still had a good match. You got the finish done, and, you know, the, the house was still draw and all that. So, yeah, and, and another one, if you're talking to a promoter who you know is stealing money from you, and you tell him about it, and he doesn't offer, you know, even try to offer to make it good or to, to even negotiate with you in any way, shape, or form, but turn his back where he won't look in the eye and just deny it, and you do that twice, and it does the same thing, you just go ahead and keep taking it? No, that's that's the person that I wouldn't want to be like, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you couldn't respect yourself, and I certainly wouldn't well, respect anybody else that would do that. I'd, I'd say your loyalty with Oli also paid off. I mean, you worked there with him for s several years there. Uh, Crockett, you know, finally takes over. You're not there a whole lot longer after that, but then turn around and Oli gets the book there. In 1990, and he comes calling. I, I'm, did you go to Oli, or did Oli come to you? Hey, Bob, I could use your help. How did that work out that you became an agent for WCW? Oli didn't get the book. Oli owned the owned the company. You're talking about Georgia how, Championship Wrestling. Yeah, Georgia yes. Championship Wrestling. Yeah, that's when he hired me. He was he owned it. I mean, he had he had a controlling interest in a stock. He had like 15 points on his self. He got he had the Briscoes had 10 or 15 points. Uh, Paul Jones uh, had some, and the way that Vince McMahon got uh, the, the Briscoe sold their stock to uh, McMahon, and that's how he lost the company. But the time Ole called me and 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 uh, offered me a job, he owned the company. He was the owner and a booker. So he, <laughs> you talk about a guy that's been successful. You know, here he's not only one of the top bookers, but he owns one of the you know it's the only company at the time. That had uh, cable TV right. that went all over the world, you know? So, yeah, and this is a guy that I'm doing me the uh, compliment of hiring me to come work with him, and I'm going to take Buck's offer to go opposition to him for N.O.? No. <laughs> You're mine. So, so my, other, my other question was, when you were hired as an agent for WCW, was that Oli, too? Was he the one that called yes. you? Or Okay, I was just yes. curious if you, you heard that Oli was in charge, and you said, no. Man, I'd like to slide. So, Oli, okay, so even those no. those years later, your loyalty paid off. And I don't think, I'm not saying Oli gave you a job because you ran it out Buck Robley. I'm sure no, that was no, a blip no, on no. his ra radar no, somewhere, no. you know, years ago. But, yeah, that's that's really cool that he respected you, and he knew that he could trust you, you know. So he comes calling. Yeah. He's like, hey, man, I'm back in charge here for Turner. Come on up or come on down. Yeah, well, you know, like we talked about in the past, I talked about with Eddie Graham and Losing my respect for him because of what I, you know, the things that he revealed about himself. I never saw that with Ole. Ole was, he shot from the shoulder and he said what he thought. And if you didn't like it, well, you know, it's too bad. You fight him or whatever. And I saw him, man, I think I had guts too. I saw him take, <laughs> he went into situations that I, you know, I, I would have been very, very hesitant to go on by myself. He insisted on going into him by himself. And telling two or three people, well, you guys want to kick my butt? Okay, let's go ahead. You try. 
but I'm, you know, I'm going to hurt at least one of you, maybe all of you. And they, they all back right up. Now he, he also had the ability of being able to fire them too. So that, that was a big, that was a big help. But, uh, you know, I, I respected the guy and he was, he was real. Eddie Graham was a con man, Ron Fuller. Sorry, Ron, but you're not a, you're not a Ole Anderson. Uh, Ole was a, was a real guy. He was, you know, he was smart. Uh, he didn't have to steal to make money. He, he, he earned it. Uh, he made himself a multimillionaire. If the guy hadn't gotten sick, you know, he got, uh, cerebral palsy or something that's just ruined it. You know, it just took the last right. part of his life. But, you know, I mean, at the, when he was, when he was burning on all cylinders, uh, he was by far, in my mind, the most successful other than Vince McMahon. Uh, he was more successful in my mind than Vern Gagne, than, uh, even, uh, well, I don't know about, uh, over there in the Carolinas, the Crockett, I don't know, maybe Jim Crockett senior. No, if you had if you had uh, TBS, you could run. The Crockett could only run in the Carolinas or wherever their territory was. Only could run with TBS. We could have run anywhere in the country, right? Which they did. They did later on when Turner bought it. But yeah, just, um, just real quick, Bob, before people start correcting us online and whatnot. Uh, actually, I think Oli wound up uh, being diagnosed with MS, multiple sclerosis. Okay. Um, okay. I just, you know, I just wanted to clarify that because people love to jump on things when we say anything inaccurate here, even if we're just, you know, hypothesizing with Bobby Shane or in this instance where you said cerebral palsy. Um, so I just wanted to clear that up real quick. But yeah, I just, um, you know, well, let me. You're you're exactly right because the the strategy there is if they say one thing wrong, then everything's suspect. Right. Even though we heard seven hours of absolute truth. Uh, he said several positives. Well, yeah, he said, he said the wrong diagnosis, so, so yeah. the wrong disease. So I, wanted, so I want to say another one. I talked on a past program about taking my parents to a concert in Lakeland, Florida, mm -hmm. for Kenny Rogers. It wasn't Kenny Rogers. My dad was a big Charlie Daniels fan. Oh, okay. And it was a Charlie Daniels concert <laughs> that we went to. <laughs> we had to get that so straight, I, too. Well, when I, listened to, when I listened to the tape we made, mm -hmm. I said, wait a minute. It wasn't, you know, it was Charlie Daniels we were going to see. So I don't want somebody to say, hey, I checked. I checked, and Kenny Rogers never played in Lakeland. Lakeland right. the, <laughs> the lion bastard you, you know. So, yeah. Oh, man. I'm, I'm with you, my friend, because okay. the naysayers and the doubters, they're looking for some way. And don't get me wrong. I, if you're listening and you hate my guts, well, I Go go ahead and hate me, but keep listening. There you go. You know, so yeah, we're do, we're doing the best we can. Well, I think that'll do it here this week. We talked about quite a few names, and I guess since we touched on so many, uh, in fact, all of the names that were involved in that plane crash back in '75: Buddy Colt, Bobby Shane, Gary Hart, and of course Austin Idol. Maybe uh, next time around, uh, part of the episode anyway. Maybe we'll touch on your firsthand experience being involved not in the plane crash, but the fallout, and you actually having to go down there and, and help these guys out of the ocean. Yeah, and uh, the reports, I was doing some research myself, and the reports I read about what happened uh, don't jive with what I saw. Now, well, go back to first so parts of it. Yeah, the parts that happened after I got there, I can attest to that. Right. And, and from what I saw, I can also attest to some of the things that supposedly happened before I got there that they couldn't have happened. 
but we'll see. Well, there's been various stories. There's news stories. There's uh, Gary Hart's book, which is, uh, well, let's just say there's probably some embellishments there, even to the point where Austin Idol, when he had a podcast, kind of corrected Gary, said, well, you know, you know, if that really did happen to me, what a great story that would be. But Austin Idol kind of downplayed the injuries that he had compared to what Gary said in his book. So uh, it's going to be interesting to hear your take, what you remember, what you saw. And of course, we will kind of go along with some of the news stories as well and see what you can verify and what maybe took place before you got there. But just knowing you were there and you grabbed these guys and helped them out of the water when there were sharks, you know, getting ready to uh, possibly pounce there pretty quickly. A lot of blood in the water there. Yeah, it's going to be a uh, I don't want to call it a fun trip because there's nothing fun about the story, Uh, but it's going to be an interesting time. Certainly intriguing to hear it from your point of view. And I'm looking forward to that. I got another question for you, but I'm, I'm going to save that for, for next week. I'm not even going to spill it here this week on the show, but it's another interesting story that I'm getting tired of listening to on Facebook. I feel like there's some inaccuracies involved. It doesn't, I'll, okay. I'll name the person it involves, and you probably know where I'm going with this. There's a guy by the name of Dick Slater, and I keep getting told about this situation that you had with Dick Slater, perhaps in a bar somewhere, and we'll get to it next week because I, I'm sick of getting the questions this way. It's out of the way, and I can point to that episode moving forward instead of going on and on about it on Facebook. But uh, yeah, we're going to definitely discuss the plane crash, and maybe at the top of the show we'll get the Dick Slater story out of the way as well. Well, that's, you know, Ray, uh, one, I'm reflecting while you're talking. I was, <laughs> do two things at once. I was One thing I pictured that just came to mind when you, you talked about pulling the guys out of the water with sharks around. That night, just an addendum here to story. When they went looking for Bobby Shane, probably took an hour for them to get a boat out there to look for Bobby Shane. But when they did, they couldn't go. They couldn't even send divers down to the plane because there were too many sharks around it, and Bobby wasn't bleeding. So let's go back to the four guys I pulled out of the water: McCord, Mike McCord, A.K.A. Austin Idol, has got a big toe that's bleeding copiously. Gary Hart's got a head bleeds like crazy because of all the, the vascularity of the veins and everything that feed the brain. And uh, his, his head was busted open uh, in four or five spots. He went through the top of a plane that landed upside down yeah. and he fell through the top of the plane to hit the bottom of Tampa Bay. And so his head was busted open. He's bleeding copiously. Now, they come up to the seawall and they're trying to get up on the seawall, and they can't make it, but they're kicking frantically their legs, trying to stay. First of all, they've still got their clothes on. They're trying to stay afloat and not drown. So they're splashing and kicking, and they're at the seawall where they can't go any further. And while they're there, they're bleeding all the time, and the blood is getting thicker and thicker all around them. And here come the sharks. So how long, how long, well, let's put it this way. Within, oh, a minute after pulling him out, I got close to the water to see if I could see anything about Shane. And uh, a hammerhead, I don't know exactly how long. It had to be 10 feet at least. Uh, but, the, but the hammer was about a, about four feet wide. Uh, so, wow. you know, it was a humongous shark. Uh, came up out of the water and stuck one of its eyes up looking to see if he could find out where all that blood was coming from. When Gary Hart saw it, he screamed like a like somebody just pulled his pulled his left foot off wow. yeah. and uh, and crawled away from the 
from the side of the water there as fast as he could. So yeah, being there when I was when I did uh, was very 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 fortunate for those guys. Well, uh, yeah, that's a great way to wrap it up this week. Just a little taste of the story that's coming next time around, guys. I, I myself, yep. I can, I'm looking forward to hearing your version, Bob, and just everything you recall from that day. And in the meantime, I'm going to go back. I'm going to read that part of Gary Hart's book again. I'm going to go try to find Austin Idol's podcast again. I'm going to try to take every side I can so I know what I'm walking into here because I've read about the story. I'm a, very familiar with the story. But, you know, it's been a while, so I'm going to refresh myself in the meantime. But, yeah, just an ama- amazing vision that you just gave us right there of uh, seeing all of this going on and being a part of it. Luckily, on the, on the better side of it. Um, but, yeah, we'll get into it completely and all the way next time here on the show. Bob, thank you so much for uh, running through all of these names here this week. It's kind of took a week off as far as following your career. And we just wanted to touch base on some of the different names you, you, know, you traveled and the roads and, and came in contact with. We even wound up in Australia and Hong Kong. I didn't even expect to do that, so that was awesome. I love it. Great stories there. Last week, we were talking about Japan, but we wound up in Georgia there for a little bit, which was really cool as well, So and South Korea. So you never know where we're going on here, and I love it, and I'm here for it, and I can't wait till next week to see where we go next. Well, I agree. I like it, too. I mean, we're in the future. We've got all kinds of places to go and uh, interesting stories, and hopefully Funny stories, you know, we can laugh laugh at sometimes sure. at my my own folly and all that, but also interesting and historically relevant to the era I was, you know, we made our living doing that, you know, and all the guys that beat up and down the road all those times deserve to be remembered. So I'm glad to be able to help do that. Well, that'll do it here this week, guys. So, Bob, I want to thank you again, and we will be back soon. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Ray. All right, guys, it's going to wrap it up here this week. I want to thank you once again, Bob, for another fun week here on the show. And just a reminder, you guys can go over to Facebook right now, facebook.com slash poorbobroop. Friend them today. You can also find me, Ray Russell, over at X, formerly Twitter, at Rasslin Grenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. Also, follow and like me, facebook.com slash Rasslin Grenade, as we'll be back soon with more fun and intriguing stories here on the Wrestling Stoop with the legend himself, Bob Roop. Bob Roop.